son, and I have two kids. I have a daughter, six-year-old daughter by the name of Abby, and I have a four-year-old son by the name of Jude. uh, Jude just turned four this summer. And one of the things that came along with his turning four was his incessant desire to do everything that he sees the people in his family doing. And he usually comes up uh, in a phrase like one of his favorites is, "Uh, can I help you, Dad, or can I help you, Mom? And uh, this sometimes can happen uh, underneath a car. It could happen cleaning a, a, a living room. It can happen in the kitchen when we're cooking and there's hot pans and messes to be made. And Jude started earlier this year. It, it always happened like this. He would begin, he'd ask, first of all, he'd be like, I want to do that too. Or can I help you, Dad? Or can I help you, Mom? And then if we said yes, he'd start pushing one of the kitchen chairs up to the stove so that he could get up to where we were. Well, over the course of the last year, that's changed a little bit. He kind of got the cart behind the horse, and now what you'll generally see when we cook dinner is you'll hear the screeching of a wooden chair across the floor as he's asking you, as he's already coming your way, asking you, can I help you, Dad, or I want to do that too? And that's kind of his way of not asking you for permission, but telling you that he's on the way. And so Jude will often do that. One of my favorite lines from him is that phrase that comes out of his four-year-old little mouth. I want to do that too. And he just says it with a smile on his face. And I love it. This is one of my favorite seasons in, uh, in my life as a parent is him wanting to be involved in the stuff that I'm doing and Brianna is doing and Abby, his sister, he just wants to do what we're doing. And I bring that up because we're at a turning point in the Gospel of Luke. For those of you that might not have been here for the past few chapters, I'll catch you up real quick. It's been all about Jesus Christ and his life, his lifestyle, his life's power, his life's words, all about Jesus. And from chapter 5 to chapter 8, he's been doing a lot of incredible stuff, as he told us he would in chapter 4. I want to remind you of something that he came in on the scene saying. This was kind of like the mission statement of Jesus where he comes into a synagogue, and in chapter 4, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me uh, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so from chapter 5 to chapter 8, we have been seeing Jesus doing just that, right there in the middle of a a small town surrounding Galilee, healing the sick and proclaiming the good news to the poor and uh, setting to sight those who are blind and all sorts of things, him giving a glimpse of the kingdom of God coming to earth. And it's been awesome. And he's also had a a little entourage of of rough, uh, rowdy Galileans that have kind of been wanting to follow him along and watching the things that he's been doing. And so they've been observing his life and being captivated by it. But 9, chapter 9, is a turning point in this narrative where the disciples move from observation to participation. And I want you to see this happening uh, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the first nine verses. Starting in 1, Luke, the writer, says this, And Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing from your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics or jackets. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, and when you leave that town, shake off the dust 
from your feet is a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised by the dead, by some others that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. This is also the turning point in the life of the disciples, where it's no longer just Jesus doing things. He's going to continue to do things. He's going to continue to do things in the world for thousands of years. He is right now doing things in the world. The turning point wasn't with Jesus. The turning point was with the disciples, who moved from a place of observation, which is very needed, to a place of participation, which we're going to see in chapter 9, verse 10. And it starts with a single line, just four words that should shape your identity as a follower of Jesus from this point out. It's from uh, verse 2, and uh, just for, for your information, I'm going to th- go through hitting a few of these verses, sometimes out of order, to help build the case of what Luke is presenting to us. But let's start with verse 2, where it says, and he sent them out. We're going to talk about what he sent them out to do, but I just want your mind to just sink on those four words. That the Christian, the follower of Jesus, is first and foremost someone who is sent out. You are sent. Now, it might be a little bit confusing if you've grown up in the church for a number of years and you're used to that type of vernacular being used to describe people that leave. It could be like an overseas missionary. They are sent out. It could be a church planner who used to live here, but they're sent somewhere else. And you might, after hearing that type of language being used to describe people who leave to go do big things as something that other people are sent out to do. And it's true. Church planners are sent out. Missionaries are sent out. But it's also true that if you are a follower of Jesus... You are, by nature, somebody who is sent out. And you may hear that, and you're like, well, I've been living in Santa Barbara. I I was born and raised here, grew up here, went to DP, and then UCSB, and I'm 90 years old, and I'm not planning on leaving. So I have been sent nowhere. But the Bible says about you that you're sent to Santa Barbara. You see, what most of us, perhaps what, uh, maybe not most of us, maybe what some of us have in our minds when we think of the word being sent is a destination, But in biblical language, it's less about a destination and more about an identity. It's less about somewhere that you leave to go to and more about an intentionality that soaks through your life. So that even if you were born in the city, even if you're living in the city right now and plan to be here, as long as you can, you are to live in this city as a sent person. Meaning that you are constantly being sent to the place that you now are. That changes the way that we view our neighbors, our community, our workplace, our places of recreation, our places where we, 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 we do errands. But we're no longer there by accident. We're no longer here just to pay the bills or make rent. We are here for a reason that transcends those things. We have been sent. Think of the ways in which uh, uh, somebody who's getting ready to go overseas on mission prepares themselves and changes the way that they think when they're living in another country. They, they pray about it. 
They spend a lot of time with Jesus. They have, a, they have a different way of thinking about where they are. Nothing is an accident. They're looking at every single person differently. There's an intentionality that takes over their life. We are sent people. And the lens by which we have on the city of Santa Barbara and the surrounding communities must change. We're not here by accident. We have been sent to Santa Barbara, or if you live in Ojai, you're sent to Ojai, or if you live in Oxnard, you're sent to Oxnard, or if you live in Ventura, you're sent to Ventura, if you live in Los Angeles, you're sent to Los Angeles, if you live in China, you're sent to China, if you live in the Philippines, you're sent to the Philippines, wherever you happen to be, you have been sent there by God as an emissary. And what the rest of this passage is going to explain to us is what a sent person is supposed to look like. If we're moving from observation to participation, what does participating with Jesus look like from day to day? I'm going to give you four things that we get from the text. The first one is roots. Sent ones put down roots wherever they're at. might seem like a, a, a surface thing, but it ends up being a very important thing. I'm getting this from verse 4, where, it's, where he says to the 12 that he sends out. <clears throat> whatever house you enter, in verse 4, stay there. I just want you to wrap your mind and heart around those two words, stay there. Wherever you go, stay there. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to live in the same place or in the same town for the rest of your life. Again, it's speaking about that intentionality, that believers are to put down roots, or if I could put it in my own language, we are to establish ourselves in the neighborhoods in which God has us. It can be very easy for Christians, torn up and tired and maybe even afraid of the world and the surrounding culture to just kind of create a bubble of Christianity by which they never emerge. Perhaps you're doing that. Maybe you, you, only, you just fill your week with Christian activities, church stuff and church people and church things. When God's plan for you, yes, is those things, but it's also to put down roots in the city of Santa Barbara to be present here, because you might be the only example or fragrance of Christ that people around you will ever see. How can we keep that from people? And so we're told to put down roots, or as Jesus would say, whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there you can depart. But first, you got to stay there, establish roots. One of the best examples in the Bible that I've ever read about this comes out of Jeremiah 29. And to give you a little backstory about this chapter, the people of Israel, after centuries of disobeying God, were exiled to the nation of Babylon. So they were stripped from their homeland and brought into a foreign, uh, a foreign neighboring uh, empire that was subjecting them to all sorts of stuff. So worst case scenario, this is the worst thing that could happen to people with their own homeland. And so they're brought out of Israel into Babylon, living under the rule and subjection of this huge, awful empire. Now, some of us, maybe we're not in a literal Babylon, but we might feel like we are in exile in the same way. My life has not quite taken the shape that I thought it would following Jesus. I thought that if I was following Jesus, I'd, I, I'd have my best life now and everything would be super comfortable and I'd have a lot of money and a lot of friends and things would just go really easy because I thought that was what Christianity was, it was really easy. And you hit setbacks and you run into walls and you meet challenges. And some of those things are, in, are, are a part of your faith. Sometimes following Jesus 
entails challenge. And you're asking yourself, when is God going to deliver me from this situation? And in the same way, Israel is asking the same thing. We're not supposed to be in Babylon. We're supposed to be back in Israel. God, when are you going to deliver? They remembered the promise of Abraham in Genesis that God would bring them into a land as a people under his blessing and rule, and they were not in the land. And so they began perhaps asking, God, when are you going to deliver us? Jeremiah 29 says that uh, he gives them an actual number. You're not going to go back for 70 years. I want you to think about that for a moment. Because just like the song we just sang in the first, uh, that, that first set of worship, all God's promises are yes and amen. So likewise, the people of Israel would be brought back into their land. We would see it written about in Haggai and uh, Zechariah. But some of those people would never see the fulfillment of that promise. Some of us are praying right now for a breakthrough in our life. We're praying for certain situations to unfold. We're praying for a certain thing to happen in our lives. And if only we can experience that, everything will be fine. Perhaps God has whispered something into your heart or into your ears or revealed something to you about what he wants to do in your life, and it's not yet materialized yet. I want you to think about the Israelites, some of whom would never see the fulfillment of those promises in their lifetime, 70 years Rather, I want you to see what God says to them. In Jeremiah 29, verse 4 through 7. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. You hear that? I sent you here. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Put down roots. You're here. You are where you're at. Put down roots. Go to the Babylonian farmer's market. Find some Middle Eastern kale. I don't know, whatever they sell at the farmer's market there. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply here and do not decrease. Do you hear that? Multiply where you are at. Spread. Not just numerically, but influentially with presence, relationally, socially speaking. Get involved. Be present where you're at. Look at this last line. And seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. How many Israelites at the time were cursing Babylon, saying, I can't wait to get out of this place. And God turns around and says, you're going to be here for your entire life. Buckle down, Go to the farmer's market, buy the food, cook some meals, start a family, and start actively blessing the city in which I sent you. Now, Santa Barbara is hardly Babylon, but perhaps in some ways it is, in that any place that we live on the earth is going to have cultural values and social values and ideas and philosophies that are in direct opposition to the kingdom of God. And we have to live in that. We have to live in environments that are not going in the same direction and stream as our kingdom-loving, Christ-exalting faith. And Jesus is saying to you, I do not want you to hide. I do not want you to create a holy huddle. 
I don't know. I do not want you to create Christian cliques and factions. I want you to be a presence in the city of Santa Barbara, and not just not just an obnoxious presence. I want I want you to share the goodness of God with the city. I want you to bless them actively, blessing. You know what's interesting is soon after this passage comes the one that is on all of your coffee mugs in verse 11, chapter 29, verse 11, when God says, I know the plans that I have for you, plans for your welfare and not for your destruction, plans to prosper you. How many of us have read into passages like that? I know what those plans are. They're good plans. They're my plans. God must want to enact and fulfill my plans. When the reality is, you might be stuck in Babylon for 70 years because that's God's plans for you. And what he's saying is, my plans are always good. To the person living in Santa Barbara, in Oxnard, in Ventura, in Ojai, in Isla Vista, in Montecito, in uh, Summerlin, Carpinteria, in towns abroad, maybe you're visiting here from somewhere else, whatever situation you find yourself in, God is in some way and in some form telling you to establish roots and to be present with what you have and where you are. The second thing we're told from this passage is reliance. Followers of Christ are not just people who put down roots wherever they happen to live, but they're also people who, as they put down roots, are learning to rely more and more on the Jesus who's walking through the streets with them. I'm getting this from verse 3, where he says, Take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and do not have two tunics. Now, this is not, I don't think this is a universal command, because later on in Luke, he actually tells a group, a group of different people, you can have a jacket, you can have all of this stuff, it's okay. Uh, so for those of you that have been really excited about pumping out that jacket when the weather gets a little colder, good news, you still can. Praise God. The principle behind this passage is that the people of God should not be marked by excessive uh, reliance on the same things that our surrounding neighbors look to. This is not a command from Jesus in saying, you shouldn't have a retirement plan, you shouldn't have a 401k. No, maybe, probably should. What Jesus is teaching here is you should have a hope that transcends earthly securities. You can have all of those things, you can have a jacket, <laughs> you can have a 401k, you can plan, you can save up your money, but you should also if you're following this Jesus guy, if you're following this Jesus, you should also have something that transcends those types of security so that when those things fall out from under you, if they do, you'll still be able to experience the peace that surpasses understanding. You will not be shaken when the world is shaken around you. And as he tells us to do this in people's homes, in uh, neighborhoods in which we are being rooted, the idea here is that our neighbors, our friends, our family will look at our lives and see something different. That our neighbors would see our lives and where our security uh, lies, and they'll see perhaps something in you that their, their, their deepest heart longs for. But perhaps as you're at work and that, that fourth quarter hit hard and the bottom is dropping out from under you and... Uh, you can just smell layoffs in the air and everybody is freaking out and trying to uh, steal place in the company and rise to the top and it's a cutthroat environment and there you are with a smile on your face and you're like, I'm going to go play ping pong. And people are looking at you and like, what is wrong with you? Don't you see that our, <laughs> our careers are about to end? 
And perhaps they look straight into your eyes and they see something different. That's the idea here. Our reliance is on something else other than our jackets and our money and our stuff. I love that. Uh, how many of you love this, that famous psalm, Psalm 23, the shepherd's psalm, which starts off, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. I have often thought of that line, he, he makes me lie down in green pastures, as God or Jesus bringing me one day to this place where green pastures will abound. And the visual I've had, maybe you've had this too, is green pastures like Madagascar, just unending rainforests of abundance. Waist high alfalfa, waist high greenery where God will one day bring us to a breakthrough and once we get there, we will have everything we need. We'll never need to rely on anything in our lives. If God can just bring us to the green pastures, everything will be fine. We'll never need anything from there on out. The problem with that visual of the green pastures is it's the Middle East. I don't know if you've been to the Middle East, especially that part of the Middle East, but it is not a rainforest. It is a desert. And the shepherds that would have read the psalm, the shepherd who wrote the psalm, would have had a visual in mind. Uh, these landscapes of, of cascading hills that were mostly dirt, no greenery at all, full of rocks and sand and gravel that shepherds would lead their sheep in concentric circles around the hillside, grabbing whatever they could, and it was sparse. But little by little, uh, because of the humidity of the air, it would eventually cause this condensation to fall uh, onto and form dew, which would cling to some of the bigger rocks and drip down like little droplets to the bottom of the rock, where underneath, after some time, a tiny little shoot would spring up underneath the rock, like this. And underneath the rock would be a tiny little strand of greenery. This, this is green pastures, a mouthful. <laughs> the idea here isn't that God will one day bring you to a place where you'll never need him again. The idea is, like a shepherd, he'll bring you to this mouthful. And in a moment, when you're done with that mouthful, he'll need to bring you again to the next mouthful. And when you're done with that mouthful, he'll bring you again to another mouthful. And at every mouthful, you are constantly aware of your need and reliance on the shepherd to get you through the desert. In order to do that, we must grow in our awareness of his presence. And some of us feel like we're running through the desert scattered and aimless. Well, the best thing that we could do is to turn our attention to the shepherd who is there, who can lead us to each mouthful. You might say, well, I don't have time to do that. I'm busy. It's crazy. I don't even know how God is interacting with my life. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. I can't see it. One of the, one of the best examples that I've heard in Christian history of a person doing just what you're after right now is a guy by the name of Nicholas Herman. lived in 1611. And he was not a missionary. He was not a professional scribe or a churchgoer. He didn't have a religious studies degree. He was a dishwasher in a kitchen, obscure and unknown. And he got into his head one day that it might be feasible, it might actually be possible 
for him to grow in his awareness as he was scrubbing those dishes. And so he began to practice. Uh, he, he said, uh, I'm going to start dividing my day into these chunks of time, and I'm going to make sure that at those uh, allotted times, I'm going to stop no matter what I'm doing and just turn, even if it's briefly or under my breath, my attention to Jesus, who is actually present with me, even if I'm not aware of it. But I want to grow in that awareness of him being there with me, even as I'm washing the dishes. And so he practiced this, uh, fell off the wagon, stopped, uh, didn't always do it perfectly, maybe went long stretches, uh, just washing the dishes in his own flesh. But little by little, he started to develop the spiritual discipline of being aware of Christ always in him, with him, and around him. Pretty soon, he got so good at doing this that he was, honestly speaking, constantly aware of the presence of God so that he could not do even the most mundane and ordinary task without understanding and being aware and conscious that Jesus was with him doing that, washing a plate. Not only that, but his demeanor changed as he began to grow in his reliance on Christ in the most ordinary activities. People started to know a difference in his life. He wasn't just the dishwasher anymore. There seemed to be a light exuding from his persona. He seemed to be happier and full of joy. So infectious was this that people started asking him what he was doing. And he would jot down journal entries and explain and teach other people. Eventually, his name changed, as people changed his name, from Nicholas Herman to Brother Lawrence. And Brother Lawrence and his writings on prayer would get put together in one of the most uh, best-selling, one of the best-selling spiritual volumes that the church has ever seen. It was a book called The Practice of the Presence of God from a dishwasher who learned how to be conscious of Jesus as he was washing dishes. He said in some of the opening pages, my prayers are nothing other than just a sense of God's presence with me. That's it. Think of being more aware of God's presence as you go into that uh, nerve-wracking project that you have uh, available to you this, this following week. Think of what it would be to stop before a very difficult, conflicting conversation that you have to have and that you don't want to have and to say right before you go into it, Lord, I know you're here with me. Make me more aware of your presence with me and guide me. In Jesus' name, you walk into it. Think of paying the bills as you're paying the bills and handling your finances, just pausing every now and then to be aware that Christ is with you paying the bills. As you're running errands, as you're shopping for groceries, as you go down to sleep, practicing the presence of God, who doesn't just care about things like preaching and leading worship and going overseas on mission, but also errands and running the bills uh, and parenting children and waking up and going to sleep and going to the park and recreation and gym and work life and working out, and eating right, and all of the things that we do on a normal occasion, that somehow Christ could be present with us, if only we were conscious of it. We're to be rooted in the, in the community, present in the community, relying on the presence of God with us. But in order to do a couple things, one is to live by example, and one is to live by explanation. Let me explain the first one, example. It says in Luke chapter 9, verse 1, that he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. 
He's not just giving them information about himself. He's giving them commission to live like himself. He is now giving them power and authority over the same demons and sickness that he had power and authority over. He just spent the last few chapters doing the unthinkable, casting and expelling demonic principalities, breaking bondage, breaking spiritual chains. And in Luke chapter 9, he says, that was how you do it. So here's my authority and here's your power. Now you go out and try it. And they went out and it worked. We're not just people that are rooted in Santa Barbara. We're not just walking from uh, bite to bite to bite. We're doing all of those things, but we're doing that in order to live an example of what the kingdom is supposed to look like. And we're not just going out there pushed out into the deep end with no resources. Christ sends us with his spirit and with power and authority as if it was him in us doing the same thing. Have you seen stories about Jesus and demons? None of them argue with him. None of them push back. Sometimes he doesn't even have a chance to say a word and they're already trembling. That's where the convulsions and manifestations come in. Now we'll walk through the mechanics of what it means to cast out a demon when we get to the next chapter and where it comes up. All I want you to hear about today is the incredible authority and power that all believers have in them if Christ is in you the hope of glory. And what would that look like if you were to walk down Olive Street, walk through Salinas, walk through the West Side, walk down State Street, walk into your living room, knowing and understanding and believing with everything in you that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, 1 John 4, 4. Would that change your demeanor a little bit? Would it change the way you went to work? I think some of you need to go into work on Monday morning and start taking authority over the spiritual climate in your workspace. You don't have to be weird about it. Don't like dress up for the occasion or anything. (laughs) You could do this under your bed. I don't care how you do it. What if Christians in this room started going into respective industries saying, Christ is taking this ground for his glory and he sent an emissary, that's me. And you begin pushing back the darkness inch by inch, little by little, experiencing small victories by faith. How many of you believe that you might start seeing a little shaking going on in the spiritual climate at work? I think some of you need to start taking authority over the spiritual climate of your home, over your marriages, over your singleness. I think some of you need to go into your kid's bedroom when they go to bed at night and start praying for the dreams. Start saying, and not from a place of timidity, but saying, I take authority over this place. This belongs to me. This belongs to my family. And I belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. And I will not tolerate darkness in my home. You have been evicted. I cast you out in the name of Jesus, and I don't want any lip from you. You get out, you take your friends, and you never come back. This belongs to the Holy Spirit. And watch as your children sleep peacefully. Watch as your coworkers start to look at you a little weird. You're like, why are you so happy? Watch as chains start to break and people start coming to you and asking, like, what's going on in my life? And seeing that your life is rooted in Santa Barbara relying on Christ, maybe they'll ask you, what's going on in their life? He also tells us, he also tells his disciples, he gives them power and authority to cure diseases. 
Christ did this for chapter after chapter, just healed people. Everything from fevers to death. And then he tells his disciples something outlandish. I have now given you power and authority to do what I do. In fact, in the Gospel of John, he would go so far as to say, my people, my disciples will do even greater things than me because I go to be with the Father. And some of us in this room skip over pages like that because we just can't believe it. Brothers and sisters, you better believe it. The same Christ who raised uh, dead bodies from the dead now dwells in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit and is actively available in this world and in this community and in your family and in your job place to put his power on display again. All that he asks for is to be asked for it. You know what the kingdom of God is? We can explain it very simply. The kingdom, what's being put on display in here with power and authority, is simply anywhere where God's will is being done here as it is in heaven. And we're promised in the Bible, we see that vision in Revelation, that there will be a day where only his will is happening here as it is in heaven. But right now we're in the tension. We see that battle between one kingdom and the other. But we also, as Christians who believe in a powerful God, should also see and long for and believe and live for little spurts of his kingdom breaking into our world. And some of these might be big. Maybe in your mind you're thinking of big things, like I'm going to start a nonprofit that's going to take down social injustice, and that, that's awesome. Or maybe some of you are like, I'm going to become a preacher. I'm going to start a church, you know, big religious things. But let me tell you something else. What about when your toddler throws a tantrum, speaking for a friend, <laughs> and you're tired, and you're worn out, and you've been pouring out at work all day, and maybe, uh, maybe with your kids as well, and it's a thankless job, and you're drained, and you've got nothing left in you, and the one person who should be grateful that you have sustained their life for years is now throwing stuff at you, doing uh, snow angels in the ground as crocodile tears pour out of their eyes in the middle of the grocery store. And you just explode. Ah, you're so ungrateful. Why did you do that? And then you catch yourself and they're like, oh no, I shouldn't have done that. And so what do you do? You allow the kingdom of God to break into your world. You say, Christ, the next time, you say, Christ, I know you're with me. Help me, even as this is going on, just help me. And then you step forward. And you don't let him help you. You, you kind of explode again. Ah, why are you doing that? I can't believe you're so ungrateful. Do you know what I've done for you? But then the third time, or the fourth time, or the 17th time, something clicks. And as you ask Christ to dwell in your mortal body and to conform you to his image, that continual longing that you've been swimming in starts to take effect. And maybe, just maybe, at one time in the grocery store when your kid is screaming, and embarrassing you, and humiliating you, you find a little bit of restraint. And perhaps that's happened to you as you've been walking with Christ and you kind of just brushed it off as your own willpower. No. That is the kingdom of God breaking into your life. Remember those little moments. Maybe you have road rage. And people cut you off on Highway 101 and traffic, and you are tempted to yell at them and give them all sorts of sign language. 
And then you come to church, you feel bad, you go out on Monday, and then you say, God, I'm not going to do that again, and you keep doing it. But on the third time, or the fourth time, or the 20th time, as you stop in the middle of that, as your blood is beginning to boil, you say, Christ, I can't do this on my own, please help me. You feel just a little bit of peace and calm. And perhaps for the first time in your life, you care a little bit less about being cut off in the parking lot. That's the kingdom of God breaking into your life, a little bit at a time. The last and fourth thing that we see in this passage is explanation. That we're not just to be rooted in the city, relying on Christ as we walk with him and giving people, our neighbors, examples of his goodness, but we're also to explain the goodness of that kingdom to people. Not to just live it, but to actually talk about it. He says in Luke chapter 9, verse 2, he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. The gospel, you know, we just talked about the kingdom, which is God's will happening down here as it is in heaven. Anywhere that it's happening down here as it is in heaven. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is good news. That the kingdom which we could not reach or attain for ourselves or ever climb up into has come down into our world, apart from us. The gospel is that the kingdom of God is broken into our world through the work and person of Jesus Christ. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus has been proclaimed and declared by the Father to be both Lord, King, and Savior. And that is it. That right there is what the Apostle Paul would say is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. It is the announcement that what we're seeing in the physical realm is not the end of the story. The crying a kid, the tantrum that's being thrown in Trader Joe's is not the end of the story. The social injustice that we're dealing with in the world is not the end of the story. The cut that we've got on our forearm is not the end of the story. The loss of a loved one that we just experienced is not the end of the story. The tragedy, the grief, the loss, the sadness, the overwhelming humiliation, the, uh, the, the difficulties and the challenges are not the end of the story. Why? Because of the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he's not just Lord somewhere out there in the sweet by and by. He's Lord right now, waiting for somebody who has the audacity to ask him to break into their world, even if it's just a hiccup. And so we call people to respond to the gospel. What does that mean, to respond to, the, to that announcement? It means to believe, to repent, and to follow to believe that he is actually who he said he is. He's Lord and he's Savior. But also to repent, to turn away from the course that you were going and to follow Jesus and to learn what it looks like to participate in his life. To those who take on that mantle, Christ promises challenges still, might still be in Babylon, and even suffering. But he also promises that underneath that suffering is a hope and a peace and a joy that you will never experience from the things that you used to chase in this life. And he tells us not to hoard that for ourselves, but to talk about it and put it on display even as we live in our respective towns. And there will be opposition, right? That's why I wanted to include the last couple verses there where it says in verse 6 through 7, and they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Note right there, there's success. Jesus says, go show and proclaim, and stuff's going to happen. 
If the people of Santa, uh, Reality Santa Barbara started moving into the city of Santa Barbara talking about Jesus and living like Jesus, I think that there would be an unearthing of the spiritual climate in this town. I think people would get saved. I think people would get healed. I think uh, demonic oppression would be broken. But notice the next line. Now, Herod. <laughs> now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all these things that was happening, and he was perplexed. Herod stands for and symbolizes, he's a real guy, but he also stands for and symbolizes all the opposition to the work of Christ in your life, in your family, in your town. And this is there to remind us, almost like a canopy of foreboding, that in this life we will have difficulty and trouble. We will also see tremendous kingdom success. And to know that whether it's successful, where we see the, the Spirit of God moving in our midst in awesome, wild ways, or we see setbacks and challenges and opposition and criticism and humiliation, to know none of that stuff is in your control anyway. Just do the thing that you're called to do. That's why I think we get that, that verse in this passage that maybe some of you are reading and you were like uh, kind of furrowing your brow out where it says, you'll come to some homes that don't receive you and you're to shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Uh, in other words, the people in this time and in this place were to go from house to house looking for doors that were open to them. And once they found an open door, they were to stay in that house as long as they were, uh, as long as they were allowed to. To the doors that were closed to them, they weren't to make a fit about it. They were to brush their hands off and move into another direction. If I can paraphrase this in my own language, stop spinning your wheels over things that aren't happening. Instead, look for the low-hanging fruit. Do you know Jesus said that the harvest in our town is plentiful? In other words, there are people waiting to interact with your kingdom-saturated life. There are people that are on the fence who have no idea how to make sense of their world, who are waiting for an emissary of the kingdom to come and show and talk about what a life is truly supposed to look like. And if they could just experience what you have, if they could just hear about what you have, their life would be incredibly changed. Why waste your time on silly fights that go nowhere? As Christians in the city of Santa Barbara, there is low-hanging fruit all over this town. This is telling us, don't mind the closed doors, go after the open ones. Oh, and praise God, brother and sister, your life is full of open doors. If you haven't seen them yet, it's just because you haven't left your door. All throughout the city of Santa Barbara, in your sphere of influence, are people with a hunger that they do not know yet how to satisfy. And we can't control the outcome. They'll either choose or they won't choose. We can only choose to live as sent people on mission with Jesus. One of my favorite things about Jude, when he says, uh, when he says what he says, I want to do that, uh, is what it does in me. Recently, he asked uh, to make an omelet with uh, mom and dad. And, you know, the worst thing that you could hand to a four-year-old boy is a carton of raw eggs, FYI but I did. He wanted to crack them, he wanted to whisk them, he wanted to pour them, he wanted to flip them. Here's the thing. Jude doesn't often do things as well as I do at this point. And it makes no rational sense for me to include him in the things that I'm doing. But I do every time. You know why? 
it's the greatest joy as a father that I have. And make no mistake about it, he drops raw eggs on the floor, he spills them in the stove, they go into the cracks of the stove, never to be seen again, except by the ants. He gets shells into the eggs, and I have to fish them out, and sometimes I only find them when I'm eating the omelet. And even worse, somehow his shirt comes off as we're cooking, and the raw eggs become a part of his person. And I still offer him the chance to do what I could do better than he can. Why? I love it. I love it. I love that my son and my daughter ask me to do stuff with me. I will never turn them down. I don't care if they ruin the whole omelet. I will eat a burnt omelet. Because at the end of the day, I will not remember five years from now the type of omelet I had in September of 2018. I will, however, remember that egg, that egg white just smeared all around the hair of Jude as he's standing buck naked in the kitchen looking at me with the whitest smile on his face saying, I want to do it again. And I will say, yeah, buddy, let's do it again. Look at here. God could do everything that he's supposed to do better than you can better than me. He doesn't need us. Why does he ask us to partner with him in his mission? Because he delights in it. Luke chapter 12 verse 32 says, fear not, little flock, speaking of us. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's like a, like a dad who could make a better omelet than his four-year-old kid but chooses instead to allow his child to pull up a seat at the table. So your father invites you into the mess of his mission, knowing that you're going to mess it up, you're going to drop eggs on the floor, you're going to get shells into the mixture, you're going to smear stuff all over, and you're going to wind up a big mess. There's still a smile on your father's face as he looks at you and says, let's do it again. And may the response of God's people be every day, I want to do that too. I'm going to ask Robert and the rest of the team to come out here as we sing. We're going to sing a few songs. Songs in which our mouths, our words, are asking Christ to participate in his mission, accepting that invitation. And as we do it, you know, we can respond in the ways that we're used to. If you want to carve out some solitude, hit the carpets with us today. If you want to take of the bread and of the cup, uh, take of the sacraments today. If you're a follower of Christ. And remind yourself of, this, uh, of the, his death and resurrection, even as you taste of the bread and of the cup, which symbolizes his body and blood. There's prayer teams. We'd love to pray for you in any way that we can. But I want, it, I want you, in whatever you're doing, to receive the invitation. Consider the invitation. Receive the invitation to move from observation to participation. And let this be the turning point, not just in Luke chapter 9, but in the life of reality Santa Barbara that we have observed enough about Jesus. It's time to jump into the boat with him. Into a boat of a king who says of you, you are my workmanship. You're my masterpiece. The Greek word poema, which we translate poem. You are my, my poem. You are my artistry. Some of you think you're, you're you don't, you, some of you don't quite think of yourself as artistry, and yet God designed you as a piece of artwork to be on mission with him as he's beautifying the world through the goodness of the kingdom. 
And so for some of you, you might want to kneel. Some of you might want to stay in your seat. Some of you might want to get the sacrament. Some of you might need prayer. But for those of you that don't want to live the life of status quo anymore, that want to walk with Jesus through the streets, I want you to stand up with me right now. And I want you to engage in this posture with the hands wide open. Go ahead and stand with me right now if that's you. To ask the Holy Spirit for a fresh empowering. To fill us afresh with this Holy Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit doesn't, is, is not always an emotional experience like something you feel. You might feel it, that's cool, but you might not. What being filled with the Spirit means in its, in it, at, at the depth of its entirety is that your will is being given over and surrendered to the Holy Spirit who always does the will of Jesus. And so we always come before Him and ask for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, amen? We'll do that today, but we should do it tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday. But let's start now. I'm not going to pray for you this afternoon. I want you to pray for yourself. With hands open, with eyes closed, as we begin to sing, I just want you in your own words, in your own song, say, Christ, I want more of you in my life and in my city, and less of me. May I decrease and may you increase, and begin to invite the Christ who is already present to start to pervade your life right now.